Welcome to the For Peds Sake podcast, a Nicholas Children's Hospital podcast that is all about putting children at the heart of healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Chad Perlin, a pediatric plastic surgeon here at Nicholas Children's and also a father of two boys. And I am so excited to welcome you to today's episode. Today, we are joined by Dr. Melanie Suarez, a pediatrician here at Nicholas Children's, to talk about everything related to pediatric healthcare. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Perlin. Thanks for having me. Of course. And you're a mom as well to a, a little boy, is that right? Yes, a two and a half year old. A two and a half year old. And another on the way, I hear. Yes, in just a couple months. We're very excited. Thank you. A boy or a girl? A girl. So a whole, whole new territory for me. Well, congratulations. And I think your expertise both as a pediatrician and as a mom of a young one and one on the way, uh, will really shine through that expertise to our listeners today. So thank you again for being here. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different than we've done on some of our other podcasts. And for today's episode, we're going to be diving in to some of the most frequently asked questions that parents and caregivers have for their pediatricians. And these questions were submitted by all of you, our listeners, the audience, on Instagram. So thank you to everyone who submitted a question, and we are going to try to answer all of them, both through today's episode and the second one, the follow-up part two, to this really unique podcast we're doing. Because we received so many great questions, as I said, we're going to split this up into part one and then part two. So if you don't hear your question answered in today's episode, don't worry, as we're going to include it in the next one and the subsequent one. So let's dive right in. We're going to run through six questions at record speed to get through it, but I know you're going to be able to give us the information that parents are looking for. Are you ready? Yep, let's go. Let's go. Okay, question one. Can babies get dandruff? So the short answer to that is yes, but as pediatricians, we don't really call it dandruff. What we actually call it is cradle cap. That's probably what a lot of parents are going to recognize this term as. This is something that's very common. We see this all the time in the office. Usually we see this between maybe like two weeks of age and you could even get this up until one year of age. And essentially there are these really fine white scaly things on the scalp and sometimes they even become yellow, greasy. Some parents will even tell me that it's a little bit smelly too. Luckily, these are things that just go away on its own either the best treatment that I usually tell my parents is to put a little bit of oil, maybe some baby oil, coconut oil, and then you can take like a fine tooth comb and just slowly scrape at it. It's usually very satisfying for the parents to do it, but just remember not to do it too hard. You don't want to break the skin ever. And it just goes away on its own. Nothing too serious, but definitely very common. Perfect. Next question. How do I know if my baby has reflux or if it's just spit up? <laughs> and this is probably one of the most common questions that we get in the office because anytime you're seeing some sort of spit up, it could look like a large amount of volume, even when in reality, it's only just a little bit. Spit up is essentially a type of reflux where essentially some of the stomach contents are coming up and, you know, they dribble out a little bit throughout the mouth. But spit ups usually doesn't cause any sort of discomfort. Your baby, it, this may happen maybe just shortly after a feeding. Maybe they fed a little bit too much or they're getting really sleepy and they pulled some milk in their mouth. This is very common. 
But the concerning signs for reflux is when it's a more forceful vomit and your baby starts crying. Maybe they're even going to look red or start becoming a little bit stiff. And even reflux, to some degree, is normal for many kids. The things that the pediatrician is going to be looking out for is the growth chart. Look, spit-ups, even a little bit of reflux, like I said before, is normal. But if they're falling off the growth chart, that's when you should really speak to the pediatrician and maybe changing up the formula, maybe trying out some medications. That's definitely some shared decision-making you'll make with your doctor. Got it. So just to recap on that one, if there's discomfort, think reflux. If it's just spin up coming out of the mouth, baby probably won't be fussy around it. Simplest way to explain it? Yeah, simple as that. Perfect. Okay. We got a lot of questions about fevers. So we broke up two questions into three parts. So roll with me as I ask it. But first thing, at what point does a fever in babies become dangerous? Usually what I say, and so first off, I want to say that a fever is defined as anything that's over 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. For babies, particularly newborns, the best way to check a temperature is by rectum. And I like to tell parents, don't be worried about checking it by the rectum. It doesn't hurt them at all. It is the best way for us to check a temperature better than, you know, a thermometer in the armpit or trying to use the one in the ears, especially when they're so small. Usually what I consider to be a medical emergency is when a baby that's less than one month old has a fever. Just because they're just kind of really brand new to the world, we don't really know what they were exposed to, especially if they're around a lot of people. So if you're having a, a true fever and less than one month old, that's when I say you should, of course, call us as pediatricians, but you should be going to the emergency room. When they're a little bit older, fevers can definitely be treated at home, but what the warning signs are more so that if they're inconsolably crying, like no matter what you do, you've given Tylenol, you've given Motrin, they're inconsolably crying. Those are reasons maybe to seek out the medical attention, go to your pediatrician, go to the emergency room. If they seem that they're just very sleepy, that they're in bed, they're not feeling well, you're trying to arouse them and they're just not really responding to you, that's also really concerning. Especially, again, as they get older, if they're complaining about some neck stiffness or if you're just seeing that they're having signs that they're having difficulty breathing, that their chest is moving up and down really fast. These are all signs to me with a fever that you should be going to seek extra attention. That is great. Thank you. And I, I just want to follow up on one thing that you had mentioned about a pediatrician or emergency room. Urgent cares, okay, appropriate for fever. We have a large network of, of urgent cares, as you know. Is the emergency room the right place for fever or urgent care? How do parents help decide between that? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. And I think that urgent care is a great medium. I think that during office hours, a lot of the times I really do try to recommend, especially for my patients I see in the office, many pediatricians want to be the ones who get called first. So during traditional office hours, you know, 8 a.m. to 4, 5 p.m., go ahead and give your pediatrician a call and they're going to be the ones to really guide you because a lot of things do not need to be seen necessarily in the urgent care or the emergency room. A lot of pediatricians have a lot of tools in the office and trust me, that cuts down on your wait times. It, you know, you get seen sooner. So I would suggest if it's during office hour times, try to go ahead and call your pediatrician's office. When it gets a little bit later, I think that urgent care versus the emergency room, 
if it's just maybe one or two days of fever, they're still acting themselves, they're still eating, but you just want to get them checked out, maybe see if they got flu or strep, something like that. I think that's when an urgent care is appropriate. But as parents, you know your child best. You know when something just does not feel right and no one would ever ding a parent for bringing them to the emergency room just for extra care, extra higher level. I think that's great advice. Always start with your pediatrician. They're going to be the folks who know your baby best. Mm -hmm. If it's a a young child, less than four weeks of old with a high fever, probably best to head straight to the emergency room in consultation with your pediatrician if appropriate. And for an older child with a fever, if you can't get in touch with your pediatrician, urgent care may be a place to start. Perfect. That's exactly it. Perfect. Okay. Same topic. What are some do's and don'ts for helping a child fight a fever? Yeah. So as we had mentioned before, a lot of times fevers can be managed at home. So the things that I do want parents to be doing is to always have children or infant Tylenol ready. If they're older than six months old, you could be using ibuprofen. So you could be giving these medications at home, especially if the fever is getting higher. What I do want you, the parents to also do is keeping them in some light clothing, you know, even though they may be having chills, maybe they're not feeling that great. Try not to keep them super bundled up underneath a really thick blanket, long sleeves on, because that could just worsen the fever. It could get them overheated. And the thing that lands a lot of kids in the emergency room is the dehydration portion of the fevers, that they're not feeling that great, they're not hungry, they're not thirsty, but parents really need to be due diligent in offering them water, even if it's just a sip or the Pedialyte, even if it's a sip every couple minutes, you know, that's important because that's what's going to keep you out of the emergency room. When it comes to fevers, the things I don't want parents to do and what people used to do a long time ago is actually put their kids in a really cold shower or even an ice bath. That's definitely not recommended anymore. And as mentioned before, only Tylenol and Motrin. Aspirin is not recommended for children. And then lastly, don't force them to eat. Children are very resilient. They could go, I like to tell parents that they they can go days without eating, but as long as they're staying hydrated, as long as they're drinking enough fluids, going to the bathroom. And, you know, so that's a sign that you know that they're being well hydrated. That's enough. So because if you try to force them to eat, trust me, you really don't want on top of a fever for vomiting to start happening too. Perfect advice. And all those alcohol rub downs that my mom gave us when we were kids, no more of that? No more, no more. (laughs) All right, mom, I hope you're listening. Okay, so we've gotten through dandruff, spit up, fevers, Let's jump into colic. Tips for parents with a baby that has colic. Good luck in answering this one in two (laughs) minutes, but give us what you got. First and foremost, I want to give any parent with a colicky baby a huge hug. It's definitely very difficult to have a colicky baby. And essentially what colic is, the short answer is we don't know what it is, but it's essentially whenever, you know, a child cries for seemingly no obvious reason, and it usually happens around three or four months. The thing that I tell parents is to have a mental checklist. When your baby starts having that really bad colicky cry, you check if there's a fever. You check if, is it time to eat? Did they wet themselves? Do you have to change the diaper? Once you have that mental checklist down, then you move over to calming methods. Some some parents, honestly, you need to bring them into the car. You need to drive them around a little bit. Sometimes you have to just rock them and do shushing motions. And it seems like it takes forever, but this is the best way. 
But the more important thing is that this can be a very difficult time for parents. It's hard to hear your baby cry. Just know that it's okay to put your baby down whenever you're feeling very stressed out or hand the baby over to someone else so that you make sure that you are in the right mental space to be taking care of your baby. But definitely a colicky baby, there really is no silver bullet, unfortunately. It's just all about calming methods and making sure that nothing else is going on. And I think you make a, a, a great point about mom's welfare, dad's welfare as well. The family who's going through having a baby who is colicky and some of the stresses and challenges that that can put on the whole family as everybody worries about the baby. So certainly an important topic there and one absolutely reach out to, to your pediatrician for our listeners uh, who will have much more uh, in-depth advice there. Okay, last question for part one of this week's podcast. How do I know if my child should get their tonsils removed? Great question. I usually refer a child to an ENT specialist to possibly get their tonsils removed. Once they've reached about five or six strep throat or tonsillitis infections within a year, that's usually kind of the guidelines that we generally follow. Another reason to get them removed is if parents are saying that, you know, my child's not really getting good quality sleep because they're snoring a lot because they're mouth breathing. And then when you look in there, the tonsils are huge. And so sometimes that could even give you a risk factor for sleep apnea or otherwise known as having periods of breathing being paused while you're sleeping, which obviously is not great. So these are all reasons to go to an ENT and they will make the ultimate decision whether or not it's appropriate to take them out. Makes sense. One of my little ones, when they were maybe six or so, had their tonsils out for the sleep obstruction you were talking about. It made a huge, huge difference. I'm going to throw in one quick bonus question sure. while we're talking about ENT and things in the mouth. Tongue tie. Lots of questions always about <laughs> tongue tie. How do you know when a baby needs a tongue tie released? What's your thoughts on that as a pediatrician? I know lots of different theories out there, but from your point of view. Yeah. And it's interesting. So and I think that's very cultural in terms of like where you're practicing. So where I did medical school, where, when I was training up in New York and New Jersey, tongue tie release just was not a thing. It's just like, unless the tongue tie is interfering with feeding, causing really bad pain, that it's, again, everything goes back to the growth chart. If the growth chart is not looking good and we think it's due to the tongue tie, then that's pretty much the only indication for me to get it released. Just having one in general, in my opinion, you don't need it. If the baby is feeding and growing, why do an unnecessary procedure? Got it. There was just a big article in the New York Times about this the other day that mm -hmm. caught my Yeah, attention. I read it. So more uh, reference for families interested in that. Okay, that was fun. Six <laughs> plus the bonus, seven questions from dandruff, fever, colic, tonsils, tongue tie, and so forth. It was great having you. And thank you for giving such concise answers over this broad variety of topics. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Perlin. Of course. So that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in for part two of this in which we're going to do the same thing with another round of questions with Dr. Suarez for our next bi-weekly upload. Make sure to stay tuned for that episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on all social media channels. You can find Nicholas Children's Hospital on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. See you next time.